0: Join Raise the Line in celebrating the launch of the new Osmosis Clinical Sciences Library, developed for first-time clinical learners. It includes hundreds of visually engaging videos paired with decision-making trees aligned to U.S. core clerkship curriculum guidelines to help students think clinically from day one to patient one. Start your free trial today at osms.it slash rtl. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice. welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and health care. For the two million Americans diagnosed with cancer each year, the emotional toll of absorbing the news is often exacerbated by uncertainty about the variety of treatments and confusion trying to navigate a fragmented healthcare system. Well, that's where Time Care enters the picture, a company that provides dedicated support for cancer patients. From connecting them to faster access to care, helping them understand their diagnosis and treatment plan, and connecting them to community resources, Time Care offers comprehensive support for the entire patient journey. I'm joined today by Dr. Brad DePice, Time Care's chief business officer, to learn more about how the company is working to improve the cancer care experience. And thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we always like to start by having our guests tell us what drew them to medicine. And in your case, you then specialized in primary care. So how'd you end up doing that?
1: Yeah, I took a a little bit of a later route into medicine relative to many of my med school classmates. I actually studied electrical engineering and computer science as an undergrad and had taken no pre-medical courses. And as will become quite relevant as we talk about time care. My entry into medicine actually started from my journeys as a patient. And so when I was in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with a osteosarcoma, a, a rare form of bone cancer, and spent the better part of two years in and out of the hospital and receiving both chemotherapy and surgery for that. And I consider myself very fortunate that I received great medical care. And and fortunately that's all in the rear view mirror. But at the time it exposed for me both that healthcare is incredibly important and American healthcare has a lot of room for improvement. And took this somewhat later career path, I took some night classes, postbacks for any of the fellow MDs who went through that process, postback classes and entered into medicine. And always sort of saw myself as a generalist in medicine. I liked thinking about the the whole patient and all of the different components that go into thinking about uh, whole person care. And that's what drove me to primary care. I also think primary care is a great place to think about systems of care and how to uh, deploy, deploy better wraparound systems of care for patients. And all of that drew me both into medicine initially and then into the primary care space.
0: But you didn't want to specialize in oncology.
1: Yeah, it's a very fair question. If you asked me on day one of starting medical school, I was going to go into oncology. As I went through medical training, as I mentioned, I. I- Became increasingly inclined towards focusing on the the systems aspects of healthcare and how do we how do we think about the whole patient and how do we think about the incentive models and ultimately led me into the direction of working on policy for a bit, which we can talk about talk about later. But I I felt like the medical oncologist that I really admired I had this deep understanding of the of the biology of cancer and many of them had spent a lot of time in in the laboratory setting and that just wasn't what I who I was as a, as a medical student and you know I think I had infinite number of years, I probably would have done fellowship in oncology, but my wife told me I had to get a real job at some point, so decided not to jump into the fellowship.
0: (laughs) We all need somebody in our lives to make us be realistic, right? Exactly. So you noted the policy thing. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I had a fantastic opportunity after finishing my residency, and I took a somewhat divided course through residency where I, I started residency, left to work on a startup, and then returned to residency a few years later. But when I Finally finished my residency, I had the opportunity to join the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, known as CMMI, and it was actually established under Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, and has done a number of different demonstration projects that I suspect many listeners here are familiar with through CMMI, and had the opportunity to join with them in 2021 with the new administration under the Biden administration, and highly recommend anybody who is interested in health policy, or even just like, what are the incentive systems that, that drive a lot of what we do here in medicine to think about, are there opportunities to work either at the state level or the local level or at the federal level? And I came away from it being, I already knew healthcare was complicated, but I have so much respect for the folks that, at Medicare that the, the level of complexity and the level of different decision-making that they're trying to make on a week-to-week and month-to-month basis is incredibly high. I am a big supporter of CMMI's ongoing programs, and I think over the past ten years, they've made tremendous progress, and and not only uh, a select number of models that have shown directly showed savings and directly showed an improved quality for patients, but I think perhaps even more importantly, catalyzed a lot of industry change in terms of rethinking about how do we how do we care for patients and how do we think critically about what are the the cost drivers of healthcare.
0: So clearly, based on not starting in medicine, and this policy journey you took, and now being with uh, timecare, you're clearly somebody who thinks much more broadly than just medicine, which I imagine is very helpful in in your current role. So let's talk about that a little bit. And I guess probably back up and ask about the timecare story, which is T-H-Y-M-E. So tell us why the spelling and how did this all come about? So time
1: time care is named after time the time the spice and I like to joke that there's no names left in healthcare and so you have to choose an <laughs> inanimate object and add either care health or well to the end of it and there's been a, a little bit of a run on spices for anybody who's followed the healthcare healthcare naming trends but but more seriously time care is a it's a fragrant herb for many people it evokes feelings of warmth and kindness and uh, our mission at, at time care is to make sure that patients feel supported and cared for throughout their journey. And so we wanted a name that would help evoke that emotion in folks. And so that's the story of the name Time Care. The broader founding of Time Care, I, I'm not a co founder of Time Care. I joined about two years into Time Care's founding. We are fortunate to be our two co founders, Robin Shaw and Bob Green, both have between them decades of experience in the oncology ecosystem. Many, both Robin and Bobby, as well as many of our senior leadership team came from a company called Flatiron Health, which was a leading cancer data company that sold to Roche in the mid-2010s, and I think it's had a tremendous impact on the oncology ecosystem. And so I would say at a high level, we had a number of people who knew oncology very well, had worked in that space for a long time, and felt that there were still some fundamental challenges that we needed to solve in terms of the model of care delivery for patients going through cancer care. And many of these the observations that they had are the same things I experienced in my own cancer journey. And I think the canonical story of this is, I experience this all the time, I know Robin and Bobby did that when they found the company, and I suspect many of the the medical listeners on this call, on this podcast uh, have heard is uh, getting that phone call from a friend or a family member saying, you know, either myself personally, or, you know, this close friend of mine recently got a diagnosis or heard something that places them at elevated risk of cancer. And what are the next steps and where do I go to? and you know all of us are happy to do that on an individual basis but when you think about that from a systems level our system should work a little bit better than needing to to know somebody who's a doctor to help figure out the next steps and, and sort of hold hands through both the initial diagnosis journey as well as throughout the entire treatment and at the highest level what we're trying to accomplish with time care is to that trusted navigator, that trusted friend who understands the healthcare system and can help navigate you through your entire cancer journey. And so that was the founding objective of Time Care is we wanted to solve that very personal problem. We've built a lot of care models and business models around that, but that is our ultimate North Star in terms of what we're trying to build here at Time Care.
0: So as you know, a lot of cancer centers have patient navigators that they yeah. you know assigned to their patients and their wonderful folks who help them with all this stuff so help us understand maybe how you guys are supplementing that role and and how you do it
1: yeah it's a great question and so There's a lot of variation out there in terms of, from academic centers to community oncology practices and at different levels of scale, what programs exist already. And we like to view ourselves as being complementary and supportive of whatever resources already exist for patients. Unfortunately, the reality is that there is too often, too little resources that are dedicated to this challenge. And to give you a sense of the types of resources that we deploy, for every patient that becomes a part of our model, they are assigned to what's called a care pod. That care pod includes a nurse, what we call a care partner, but think a lay health navigator that can sort of be the front line to answer any questions that come up, uh, a complex case nurse, all overseen by a nurse practitioner and a medical oncologist. And so there's this full t- wraparound team that is supporting every single patient that becomes a part of our of our model. and. Unfortunately, while I think a lot of systems have been forward thinking about uh, how can we deploy our own navigation programs? Frankly, there's just often not the resourcing or the business model around how to support that in a longitudinal way. And so you'll see some, some systems and some practices have navigators they frequently are not able to do sort of the scale of interventions that we do. So to give you a sense of the types of things that we do is we do regular patient reported outcomes, proactive symptom monitoring for patients when they're throughout their cancer treatment. And so we'll know, you know, based on what we see from unclaims data and EHR data on patients, we'll know when are they at highest risk relative to when they had their recent treatments, what are the symptoms to watch out for, and make sure that we are proactively addressing those things. Those are the types of things that everybody, I think, in the oncology space knows that we should be doing, but it's often hard to actually operationalize at scale.
0: Oh, sure. That's a big burden on staff time, you know, to... Yeah to track it like that and then do the outreach. So talk about it from a patient perspective. How do they get into your system? And then what's it like, you know, to be interacting with your care pod and and the other things that you offer?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the journey with time care starts with enrolling in our program. And so people enroll in our program through a number of different mechanisms, but the most common of which is that we just get up, kind of get on the phone and, and call members and tell them about the services that we offer. When we have, we form relationships with practices in the areas that, uh, oncology practices in the areas that we operate. And so in those cases, we will actually reach out either in conjunction with or on behalf of the practice in order to you know make it clear that we are a, a part of their team that will help coordinate across their care and not just be sort of a another third party that may introduce confusion or complexity and so we talk patients through what are the services that we offer patients it's a fully optional model it's also importantly entirely free to patients there's no no cost associated with it and that's one of the things that we we emphasize when we speak to patients and the way to the way to think about how a patient then if they choose to enroll in our program then interacts with us on an ongoing basis is We are that sort of friendly hand, that friendly support that they can reach out to at any time during their cancer journey when they have questions. And so they can pick up the phone at any time, get one of their care team members if they we will work through with them on you know supplemental educational materials to make sure that they're actually understanding what what is happening in their treatment right and all of us have had the experience at doctor's offices where you sort of have that 30 minute visit you have a ton of different information you're trying to jot down notes and then it's two days later and you have that question oh i really wish i had asked x y or z and we can help fill that gap and, and make sure patients really understand where they are in that treatment journey. And sometimes it's our team that does that education. Sometimes it's actually us saying, oh, oh, you know, there's actually a big gap in understanding here. We're actually going to reach out on your behalf to the oncologist and say, this patient needs a follow-up visit to discuss X, Y, or Z, or they're having trouble with some part of their follow-up. And all of these are things, again, that I like to describe it as like the blocking and tackling of healthcare and what we all wish we had, but, but you know, we've all experienced trying to interact with the healthcare system ourselves. It's, it's hard and it's emotional when you're going through treatment and having somebody that can help, help you through that journey is invaluable.
0: I was actually reading a statistic recently that people forget on average 50% of what they hear from their physician in a doctor's appointment. And that's rather alarming. It can sort of help explain how things start to fall through the, the cracks. And people probably
1: even higher when you are in what can often be a highly charged and understandably emotional setting in 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 cancer care therapy, and we see this all the time. And and that's the types of gaps that we're trying to plug.
0: Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, a cancer diagnosis gets your attention in a completely different way than than a lot right. of other diagnoses. So. What kind of results are you seeing? I mean, is this, is this playing out the way you all are hoping in terms of patient engagement and outcomes? And what can you tell us about that side of things?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're both thrilled with the outcomes that we've had to date and we've learned tons since we started working with our first patient in 2021. And so it's exciting. We're now in the thousands of patients that that we've worked with and have really iterated and developed our care model over time. The results we've seen across the board have been fantastic, maybe starting with member satisfaction. Members who choose to enroll in our program both rate us very, very highly in terms of their satisfaction with the program. And so we do regular member surveys and we average a 9.7 on those those surveys. And perhaps more tellingly, we have very, very few patients. I believe the number is around uh, 1% or actually less than 1% that voluntarily opt to disenroll from our program. And so patients see a lot of value from it and once they once they join the program are are eager to continue in it. The types of things that we've looked at beyond making sure that people are happy in our program and are and are experiencing great care. Is actually looking at are we having the impact on outcomes and on costs that we expect from this type of intervention, and that's where we've been really excited recently. We back in 2022, we we presented data at the ASCO at ASCO, one of the leading clinical oncology conferences, showing uh, significant savings in terms of total cost of care for patients who are enrolled in our program. So over four hundred dollars per member per month. We actually refresh that analysis in this year and i've actually seen that number grow up to 600 dollars. and for the members that are uh, actively enrolled in our program seeing very significant cost savings and the majority of that cost savings is coming from avoidance of hospitalizations and other high-cost experiences like that and that's kind of what you'd expect from this type of model is that you by proactively addressing problems and you know the types of things that happen all the time are somebody is having, you know, nausea and vomiting and is unable to keep fluids down after after treatment. And if that went on for another 24 hours, they likely would present to an emergency room, which very frequently leads to an admission. If one of our nurses picks up on that earlier and is able to sort of coordinate care and get them plugged in for a, a next morning infusion at the at the oncology practice to get a bag of IP fluids and maybe a new anti-emetic that can prevent that admission. And we all know things go wrong once you end up in the hospital hospital. And so it's both, you know, we we love seeing that data both from a cost saving perspective, that's important to our business model, which we can come back to, but importantly, also from a patient experience and outcomes perspective, right? When patients end up in the hospital, they end up with chemotherapy delays, it's a less good patient experience, nobody wants to spend extra time in the hospital. And so all these are things that again, we're seeing that are both reducing costs, but also improving the, the patient experience.
0: Yeah, that's quite remarkable. What else do you want us to understand about the business model?
1: we talk about how this this model is completely free of charge we are a we are a business and we are we we need to fund this in order to to scale this and continue to bring this to more patients and so the way our model works is that we partner with insurance plans or more broadly, anybody who is responsible for your medical bills. And so that can be insurance plans, some employers take on or what are called self-insured employers, where they are responsible for all the costs of care for their, their employees. And then increasingly in the value-based care world, there are primary care practices and health systems that are taking on what we call total cost of care risk, but are effectively saying, I'm going to help manage. Manage this patient, and I'm going to be accountable for that patient, and where that entity becomes responsible for all of the costs incurred by by patients through their through their medical claims. And what our value proposition is to any of those entities is say we can provide this set of services that we believe will both make your members happier and lower the cost that you're experiencing. And the way we contract is effectively we say to whether or not it's insurance plan or one of those at-risk provider groups or employers is we say, here's our fee for our services and we'll actually put our money where our mouth is. We'll actually measure the savings that we've generated on the back end. And if we don't generate savings in access of those fees, we'll actually refund those fees to you. If we generate savings in access of our fees and in access of additional savings benchmarks that we set, with our payers, we then share in additional savings. And so think about it as just a way to align incentives. And in many ways, this looks very similar to some of the shared savings type models. I was gonna
0: say, it kind of it seems to be parallel to the shared savings models that came out under Accountable Care.
1: Exactly. So it's very very much in the, so you can think about it all of our contracts to date are, are effectively setting up individual shared savings models with uh, our counterparties. And the reason both we like that model and our counterparties like that model is that it sort of aligns everybody's incentives. And once we go live with a customer, we are frequently measuring and every quarter we will sit down and say, here's what we're seeing from a patient experience perspective. Let's tell you how we are improving care for people. Let's also look at some of the key outcomes in terms of how are we enrolling, doing that enrolling patients, how are we seeing in terms of reductions in uh, acute care events and all the other cost drivers that we know, again, can both lower outcomes and increase costs.
0: All right, this might be getting too much in the weeds, but I'm curious about how you folks are able to operate in terms of your ability to think kind of independently. Of concerns about is there a code for this or will we be reimbursed for this? Seems like you're in a space where, if you decide this is something that's going to be good for the patient, you can go ahead and do it within that budget that you've got, and maybe in a way even further than the physician could. Or am I misunderstanding?
1: No, I think that's exactly right. And in in many ways, going back to your initial question of you know why don't systems already do this or or why don't they do it in the same way that you're doing is. The answer is that th- there's not a good reimbursement code for the types of activities that we're doing and the one way to think about time cares business model or time cares as a business is on the one hand what our big innovation is this new this care model that we think delivers great results but at the same time pairing it with a new business model where we're effectively bringing these shared savings arrangements to to the cancer space where we can enable it, even though there's not a reimbursement payment for the services that we're delivering directly, because we enter into these shared savings arrangements where, you know, when everything goes well, the the patient does better, the the insurance plan does better, or the healthy at-risk provider group does better and we do better, it means that you can step away from the constraints of, you know, what are the different billable codes here and towards like what's best for the patient, which again is the reason why we all got into this.
0: Yeah, no, it's terrific. And it builds on, I think, what people were hoping would happen with accountable care. So that's really interesting. Exactly. So fairly recently, Time Care announced a new round of funding. Can you talk a little bit about what that's going to allow you to do
1: yeah, we're, we've been fortunate to bring in great new investment partners in Town Hall Ventures and Foresight Capital, who joined our, who led our Series B, I should say, earlier this year. Number of different uses for the the, the capital that we've, we've brought on board. I'd say first and foremost is that we're now at the stage where we've worked with, as I mentioned, thousands of patients and multiple different customers in a few states. We have since actually that funding announcement by the start of next year, we'll be in over 20 states and have greatly expanded the number of different clients that we work with. And so that's probably the, the single largest usage of that capital is to bring us to a more a larger geographic scale and allow us to support more and more patients with this. Another model of our, another thing that we're driving forward with that additional capital is that we haven't talked about this part of our model as much, but we do, we form deep partnerships with the actual oncologists and the actual oncology practices that are delivering care. Our perspective is that our model can be most effective when. Our, our care pod team is working in, in close conjunction with provider groups on the ground. And so we're forming, we've always had these relationships in place. We're now deepening those. We're actually getting to the point of actually sitting down with practices and saying, okay, well, we're we're doing these navigation services. Can we also work with you to understand Where can we optimize some of your spend on different drugs and make sure that we're not being wasteful with with how you are managing your pharmacy or or different pharmacy supplies? And again, this is the type of thing that becomes enabled when you create these shared savings relationships where you can say, okay, if we generate savings, how do we make sure that that both comes back to time care as a company, but also goes back to uh, the provider groups that we partner with. And so that's another big focus as part of our post-Series B activities and a few other things in the works that we'll be announcing in the the coming months and years and excited for ongoing growth.
0: As I listened to all of this, what comes to mind is a healthcare system that works the way we all hope it did, but doesn't ever quite seem to. <laughs> exactly.
1: Maybe coming back full circle to where we started in many ways, my my own journey has been I experienced cancer care and I, you know, both had great care and there were a lot of gaps in care and uh, it didn't exactly always happen in the way we've hoped. And when I thought from a career perspective, one of the problems I'm really excited about working on it's how can we, how can I help build models where... We're getting a little bit closer to that patient experience that we know everybody deserves and that's that's why i'm here and it's why why time care exists
0: that's a great way to put it so as we wrap up we always like to get some advice from our guests to our audience of you know learners essentially medical students nursing students and early career professionals about you know approaching their career you've had a very interesting career path yourself you have any advice about taking risks or what else would you want to impart to them?
1: Yeah, I think I will pretend to have, have the, the be all end all advice. And I think there are any number of different fantastic routes through medical school and through clinical training, and not the least of which is, is practicing full time. I feel like that gets overlooked sometimes when we're talking about all these new exciting systems innovations. And the, the people that are really making a difference in patients' lives are the people that are dedicated to 100% clinical practice. So I always get I always like to have that disclaimer because I don't, I don't want to undervalue the importance of individual clinicians in, in improving care delivery. For myself, I think one piece of advice I like to give folks in training is, is seek out diverse groups of mentors. When you're in medical school, naturally the people that you interact with and the people that are your teachers and your assigned mentors tend to be folks that are within the medical centers that you're training in and by definition in many ways those are those are folks that are in the academic medical world and the academic world is great it's driven a lot of great success and if that's the right path for you that's fantastic but you're not going to get you're not going to automatically get mentorship from people that have chosen different career paths because they're just not the people that the medical school is is employing is going to have in front of you and so through no fault of its own it's just sort of the natural way that that process works and so i always encourage people to think about how can you make sure you broaden and diversify the set of folks that, that you think about as mentors and identify people that maybe, oh, that's an interesting career path. Let me understand how and where you got there. And then the second piece of advice i i give folks is that it is very hard i think we're sort of ingrained in this in medicine to sort of plot out every route every you know sort of you know okay then i go to residency then i go to fellowship and then i'm going to go to this subspecialty program and then i'm going to start my tenure track here and then look at the next institution and i think particularly when you go outside of the fairly tracked route of academic medicine it's really hard to plan that many steps ahead and if you asked me at any point in my career to predict where I was going to be at three years, it would have been completely incorrect. And so <laughs> be open to change, be willing to recognize that new opportunities will come up that aren't on your radar, opportunities that you thought were going to be great may not materialize and be willing to sort of adapt a little bit to those
0: circumstances as they come up. Well, that's great advice and a great note to end on. I want to thank you very much, Dr. T. Pice, for joining us today and filling us in on all the interesting work that you folks are doing at Time Care.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great to participate today.
0: I'm Michael Caris, thanks for checking out today's show, and remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/slash line podcast.